A warning before we start. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse. Act five. Vice thrives and lives by concealment. Fellowship of Friends, Angel Virgil. I'll tell you a hilarious thing that happened. I mean, I thought it was funny. <laughs> this is Dara, the ex-member of the Fellowship of Friends who taught Robert how to be a refined aristocrat. She told me this story about a time she was hassled at the U.S. border in the late 70s. She had just opened the first international center in Vancouver, and she was on her way to the fellowship's meeting in Seattle. We were stopped at the border and told to pull over. An agent took her into a room to interrogate her. I said, I have nothing to hide. Not going to find any drugs, because in the fellowship, you're not allowed to use them. He said, I want to know what you're really doing in that meeting. I said, I'm a minister. It's just not Christian. He said, we've been monitoring you and Mr. Burton for a very long time. Robert was not happy when I told him. He was really upset they had his name. That was around the time of the Jonestown Massacre, which fueled a social panic around cults. But if a federal agency was monitoring the fellowship, they didn't take any action. That changed in 2005 when ICE received a tip alleging that the fellowship was bringing non-citizens into the U.S. on religious visas for sexual exploitation. Federal agents arrived at the fellowship's gatehouse on April 13, 2007, around 10.30 a.m. During the tour, the agents observed many workers performing landscaping, construction, and maintenance work. They interviewed two workers who both said they made $405 a month. That's an annual salary of about $4,800. Ultimately, the investigation found that non-citizens were brought into the U.S. to work non-religious menial jobs for extremely low wages. Then, five years later, in 2012, ICE agents raided Fellowship property again, along with the DEA. Hell, a few years ago, the DEA decided that we were probably growing pot here before it all became legal. This is Fellowship President Greg Holman. They came in and did a big bust. I mean, they put on a hell of a raid on this property with FBI, immigration, fire department, sheriff's department. It was amazing. I obtained records of the investigation from the Department of Homeland Security through a Freedom of Information request. The report says that the DEA identified current fellowship members who were paying fellowship funds with money they made from drug sales. The agents seized marijuana plants and arrested three fellowship members, but the organization was never charged with any wrongdoing. Greg says that after the raid, he got the chance to ask one of the DEA agents a question. I turn around and look at him and say, can you honestly tell me you thought the fellowship was part of a national drug distribution ring? And he looked, he smiled, he said, no, but we thought it was a good opportunity to take a look at you. The report says that Homeland Security joined the DEA in this raid because it was still pursuing allegations of human trafficking connected with the Fellowship of Friends. That means that federal authorities were looking into allegations of human trafficking within the Fellowship over a span of at least seven years. 
An ICE representative told me that the investigation did not substantiate allegations that the Fellowship of Friends was using religious visas to bring non-citizens into the U.S. for sexual exploitation. Even though the Homeland Security investigation into possible human trafficking was set into motion by a tip about sex abuse, the reports showed that agents didn't even ask members about that. But I have. I've interviewed seven men who said Robert coerced them into sex. Two of these men said the fellowship helped them obtain religious visas. They told me they were just two of many who had this experience. So if this has been going on, why has nothing been done to stop it? taught to look at it that, you know, Robert gives so much energy to the students and you just help to replenish this energy. And this gave him access to unlimited power. With a strong influx of East European students, young, beautiful men, dedicated, idealist, I think that his sexual appetite and operation increased tremendously. This is Revelations. I'm Jennings Brown. To understand how the Fellowship handled the first sexual abuse allegations, I reached out to one of the Fellowship's first CFOs, Charles Randall. He joined in the early 70s, and around 78, took over the financial operations and joined the board of directors, remaining in the position until he left in 94. He was there for the golden years. When I was there, we were rolling in it. At the time that I left, I think the annual income was like five million, and we had a net worth of about 20 million. Back then, that was big money. Robert could do anything he wanted with it. It was like five million tax-free, just rolling in. His salary on the book salary was, I think, 125000 And then at the end of the year, we would give him a giant bonus to cover all the other money he spent. And so he'd get like another 125000 And that was just to cover things that we couldn't call a legitimate expense. So it was just a question of figuring out the things he wanted and making them happen financially. He would want to buy a painting for a million dollars. So basically it was just being the bag man really for his whims. And that's what I was. For the first decade or so, they didn't run into any issues using fellowship money to cover Robert's lavish lifestyle and shopping habits. Their first scare came in the mid-80s. Then we had a big IRS audit in uh, 84, 85, I guess. Then it ran for about two years. There were a group of us that were always watching how to make everything look good and be cover for what was actually happening. We thought what we were doing was like God's work, so to speak. And so you didn't mind that you were lying your head off to all the authorities because they were just like Pontius Pilate or something. That's the Roman prefect who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What lies did you have to tell the authorities. We never started out as a religion of any kind. The fact that the fellowship is running around now saying it's a religion is a result of the audit. Because religious organizations are tax exempt. So we made up the religion of the fellowship of friends to cover the fact that otherwise it was just Robert doing whatever the hell he wanted. And we wrote the canons of the fellowship, all of its philosophies and everything. And that's what we presented to the IRS to justify ourselves. 
So in a way, it was all a lie. So the official canons of the Fellowship of Friends were not written by Robert Burton. No, he never had anything to do with the canon. We did it ourselves. It happened in my office. Wow. Unbelievable. Before I even got to Apollo, I studied the official canons to better understand Robert Burton and what he was teaching his students. It's a 52-page document that explains their beliefs and teaching methods. I thought Robert had written it, or at least guided it, but Charles said it was just created for the purpose of tax evasion. Were you ever concerned that you might get in some sort of trouble? We had the idea that we were being watched over by higher forces. But the truth was, I found out that it's possible to get away with murder. You just do these outlandish things and you have a lot of cover and then you just get away with it. Do you think that's and, because it was protected as a religion or what do you mean? Yes, I think it was protected as a religion. I couldn't believe we got through the audit and, and sailed out of it, but we did. Huh. We totally got away with it. Were you put in any other kind of uncomfortable or precarious situations? I mean, doing the, the biddings of the fellowship and, and potentially criminal or... I never had anything to do with any of the sex stuff. Nothing. Okay. I was completely removed from that. I mean, I didn't help anybody go into it. Nobody talked to me about it, didn't come to me to ask questions about it. There were people that did all those things. I wasn't one of them. Charles claims he didn't help supply Robert with victims, but he did know about it. The first public allegations about Robert's sexual behavior came in 1984 from a man named Sam Sanders. He had also been on the board of directors for a few years when he started hearing that Robert was sexually abusing his students. Sam Sanders thought he could actually do something. He came to the board, uh, gentlemen, I have to tell you, you know, that I've discovered that this, these things are going on and everything. And of course, we knew at that point, and we said, yeah, okay, Sam, but what do you want? He said, I think we should, you know, <laughs> it was funny. Maybe you've seen Sam Sanders' letter. Have you seen it? I have. Sam sent an open letter to the board and other members of the fellowship. It said, quote, For a long time, we have been part of a criminal process which has hurt many individuals. The letter said that Robert used his position to seduce young men with the promise of immortality. He wrote, We in our blindness have allowed some dear individuals to be defiled and damaged by his appetites. Sanders implored members to, quote, Think of the anguish some of these young men have been subjected to. We go on minimizing it, because it is safer not to know. If we excuse this by saying that this is his privilege or his private weakness, we are both accomplice and victim. Sanders' letter reminds me of how we're finally starting to talk about sexual abuse. The public's view on how power dynamics distort consent are evolving, a little. But at the time, when people spoke out, they were ignored or silenced. I said, that's ridiculous, Sam. You know, what are you talking about? You know, either it's all bullshit or Robert's a conscious being and we have to follow him. He said, thank you, Sam. And when he left, we voted him out of the whole thing and threw him out. If any nail head stuck up, it got hammered down instantly. Sanders was excommunicated. The board was just basically people Robert would let be on the board. I'd say, Robert, you know, what should we tell the board to do? And he would tell me, and I'd go tell him. You, so, you were a part of the board that voted him out? Oh, yeah. 
because I was the CFO. How do you feel now about the way that you responded to him? Oh, listen, I've had all kinds of remorse over the years. You know, now I can talk about him. I've since seen a transcript from this board meeting. It confirms that Charles and other members pushed back against Sanders. One of the women on the board said she already knew about Robert's behavior, and she said these men were just experiencing what women have gone through for centuries. A fellowship lawyer asked Robert about Sanders' allegations on behalf of the board of directors. I've obtained an internal record of that exchange. Robert said that he did not brainwash or coerce his students, that all his relationships were consensual, and that the 44 angels monitor everything and would not allow sexual abuse. The lawyer asked Robert why he had sex with male students, even though, at the time, homosexuality was forbidden in the fellowship. Robert responded by quoting the creator of the fourth way, Gurdjieff. When a man crystallizes into a conscious being, there are no longer any laws for him. He is a law unto himself. Twelve years after the Sanders letter, someone sued the fellowship alleging abuse. I told you about this case in the last episode. Richard Busby was allegedly assaulted by Robert when he was working as a night guard. According to Richard, he was giving Robert a massage when Robert pulled down Richard's pants and began performing fellatio on him. Afterwards, he started speaking out about it and found out other members had also allegedly been abused by Robert, including his son, Troy. He was a minor when it allegedly started. Richard and Troy left, and Troy sued Robert in the fellowship in 1996. That case was settled out of court. I wasn't able to connect with Richard, but I did speak to another ex-member who was close to him. The first person that Richard had talked to after Robert Burton taking sexual liberties with him was me. This man also worked security during this time. What do you remember from that time when, when Richard came to you right after the incident? What did he say to you? He was quite upset and explained to me what happened. My attitude was to Richard, well, you should have known better. You know that Robert Burton is gay and you could have refused. You should have known better? He blamed the victim. Also, he points out Robert is gay, as if his sexuality is the issue here. It's not. It's that he is allegedly a serial abuser. This perspective exemplifies homophobic stigmas that make it even more difficult for victims to speak out about abuse. And this homophobia came from the top, from Robert. Remember, there was a rule against same-sex relationships. Plus, if people tried to speak out, like Sam Sanders, they weren't taken seriously. And it was taboo to discuss the leader's behavior. We just didn't talk about it. This is Jane Kell. She joined the fellowship in 95 and left in 2015. One of his guys was just hanging out in the kitchen at the Galleria. And he wanted to tell me what Robert had done to him, I guess sexually. And I just had no interest in hearing about it. I think I might have just nodded and walked away. I just felt, why do I want to learn something cruddy about the teacher? That's, that's another world. When there was negative media coverage or anything like that, would you feel that the fellowship was just misunderstood or being persecuted? Or? Yeah. Yeah. 
Definitely. I felt always they were in the wrong, never the fellowship, never the teacher. They just didn't understand what was going on. It's us against the world, the luckiest people in the world. Us against the world. Any negative accounts are an attack on the community. I also asked a current member, Peter the Pilot, about these allegations after he gave me an aerial tour of Apollo. We're all concerned about it. I was driving, so I recorded this conversation on my cell phone. I'm disappointed in that aspect of it. Peter told me everyone is disappointed in Robert's behavior, but it's more important to look at what his students have learned from him. All I can say is, to me, you've got to look at the fruit of the teaching of the students and Apollo at the level of being involved people. And not focus on the negative things. He tells me when people bring it up, he suggests they just don't read about it. I mean, Gurdjieff, you know, had sex with many of his students. I just tell people, look, you know, there's some controversy about our teacher. And I would recommend that you don't read it. If it was all true, it, would be, it wouldn't be good, but I don't believe it's all true. Another current member told me she was actually glad the teacher was targeting men instead of women. She didn't have to worry about him going after her, and she could focus on her own spiritual awakening. There's a strong willful blindness within the community. This was abundantly clear during my interview with Greg Holman, who has been president of the fellowship since 2010. We spoke on his front porch. He lives in a roadside shopping center that he converted into a house. The fellowship is so eclectic. I mean, there's many different cultures, walks of life. and There are. You're the person who has to keep all this together. Well, the teacher keeps it together. I keep it uh, organized and functioning on a corporate level. Well, you keep the ark afloat. We all play different roles in that, and, and mine's kind of one of the, the sheriff in it looking in how we keep things together legally. In the play of the Fellowship of Friends, Greg's role is the sheriff. So I'm curious how he views all the allegations about Robert. How do you think that the allegations of harm should be addressed? Well, you're doing it by just discussing it. We do it by, by the blog existing that uh, uh, talks about the, the things in the fellowship. These are almost all former members that are very well uh, educated individuals. They're excellent uh, people at, at framing things in their own fashion and arguing the facts. This is the blog where ex-members post about the fellowship. I told you about it in the first episode. It's how I initially connected with my first sources. The blog contains hundreds of anonymous posts discussing the allegations of abuse. There's a lot of gossip and hearsay, but there are also many harrowing and highly credible posts from survivors and excellent citizen journalism about what was really happening in the fellowship. Greg, the sheriff, told me he checks it frequently. Halfway into my reporting this story, ex-members started posting about me, saying a journalist was finally doing a story on the group. Greg called me immediately to let me know I'd made it onto the blog. So I know that he must be very aware of all of the allegations of sexual abuse. They've done an excellent job of forming an attack on the fellowship. It's, it's masterful. They're consistent. I have respect for that. I just don't happen to agree with them. And I think it's your job to report those sides of things and let people... But it's very one-sided also. You don't get two sides on, on, on those people's sides. Like if you talk to the average person here, you don't get two sides to it. 
But there are members who have expressed to me concerns that Robert is abusing his power and exploiting students. Members? Yeah. I mean, current members? Yes. Of the fellowship? Yeah. Do they yeah. ever express those concerns to you? No. You know, I, I, can keep a, I keep a completely open office. Uh, anybody can walk in any time, but nobody ever comes to me with those kind of questions. I don't know what abuse they could be talking about right now. When I first came out here, I, I knew kind of there'd been lawsuits and negative reports decades ago. It seems like since then it's become more organized and sophisticated, um, that sort of what is? exploitation. Um, I don't know. Explain. Well, I mean, it's a lot of students coming in from other countries, um, you know, through the fellowship, through visas. Um, and it's... We don't, as a rule, we don't pay for anything like that. It's just not the way things are done legally nowadays right. and immigration-wise. And uh, I, I work to keep that in tight wraps. Because we don't, we're not looking for any situations to go uh, against the government in those ways. It sounds like these days the fellowship is being very careful to stay within the bounds of the law. It sounds like you're not concerned with um, sexual exploitation in the fellowship these days. No, I'm not. No. No. Nobody comes to me and reports anything, and I would think that uh, you know if they're really serious, they would, or if if there was really an egregious legal violation, I'd want to hear about it. I'd be concerned. Yeah. So does does surprise you that I've heard that? I guess. You know, don't sit around saying, well, gosh, I hope somebody comes in and talks to me about sexual exploitation today. But there's plenty of people that would pay attention to such things. But I don't know if anything. If you want to encourage them to come and talk to me, I'll listen to them. But they better become armed for bear and with facts and information because I don't like to take idle accusations. I don't take them idly and lightly. That, to me, sounds like the attitude of a sheriff who is more interested in protecting the system than its citizens. A few weeks before this podcast was released, I sent Greg and the Fellowship a list of the most sensitive allegations. I asked about the canons created during the IRS audit. I asked if the Fellowship or Robert Burton wanted to comment on the allegations from multiple men who said Robert committed acts of sexual abuse against them. I asked if the organization wanted to comment on the allegations that the Fellowship helped men obtain religious visas so they could move to California where they were coerced and having sex with Robert. Greg responded, saying he and the Fellowship did not want to comment further. Robert Burton, he definitely ran a cult. He ran an organization where his word was law, where the people who were members worked for free or for very little pay and did what he wanted them to do and exploited his position of authority to seduce and have sex with many of the male members of the Fellowship of Friends. This is one of the few attorneys who ever took on the Fellowship. He represented Troy Busby, who sued the Fellowship, alleging Robert sexually abused him starting when he was 17. My name is Ford Green. I have been a lawyer for 36 years. I've 
had a lot of success litigating against what are called cult groups that employ trickery and fraud in order to set a person up to be brainwashed uh, without his or her knowledge or consent. I hoped he could help me understand why the Busby case and the controversy surrounding it didn't do much to stop Robert and the fellowship. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you is I know you played a part in the first time someone tried to do something about this. Obviously, it, it didn't hinder them. And since then, it seems like things have only gotten more sophisticated. They mostly recruit from Russia and Romania and other countries, and they bring in these young men. ICE did a raid because they'd gotten a report that they were bringing in members with religious visas. Yeah, well, I, that was certainly uh, something that was going around when I was dealing with them. So if there's been these raids and clearly some level of investigation and members have brought lawsuits against the fellowship, why do you think that the fellowship has been able to operate for 50 years? Brainwashing, for those who are uninitiated and don't know what the patterns of it are and don't know what the behavioral features of it are and don't know what to look for, appears to be consensual. And... The, most of the problems with uh, governmental agencies and cults, law enforcement doesn't know what to do with a cult. You know, law enforcement doesn't know how to go after them, and DAs don't know how to go after them. And, you know, so what? There, there was a, a couple of searches. Big deal. Was there ever any sort of criminal prosecution of any of the hierarchy in the Fellowship of Friends? No. Right. So, you know, big fucking deal. The reason it's been able to survive for 50 years is that it's got sufficient number of brainwashed members to provide slave labor and do the bidding of the leadership. As I was working on this story, a case against another spiritual group was constantly in the news. Keith Ranieri leads a cult that masquerades as a self-help group called Nexium. He's now facing serious charges stemming from alleged actions within Nexium. In March 2018, Keith Ranieri, the leader of the Nexium cult, was arrested on charges of sex trafficking and forced labor. In 2020, he was sentenced to 120 years in prison. I reached out to an attorney involved in that lawsuit to see how lawyers approach cases like this these days. My name is Moira Penza. I was a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York. And I was the lead prosecutor in the Nexium case. I met Moira at my podcast studio in Brooklyn. She had no previous knowledge of the fellowship, so she couldn't directly comment on my reporting. But our conversation did help me understand how the legal system has failed victims of spiritual groups. What I have learned in all of these types of groups is that the specific ways in which people are manipulated make it very difficult to bring these cases forward. One of the things that I have seen as a common trait is this teaching of don't complain, don't be a victim. You can choose to be happy in this moment. If you are, you know, feeling like a victim, that's some, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, in the fellowship, there's a lot of, like, no negative thinking. I mean, it doesn't take much intelligence or enlightenment to see the darker side of life, and there's no gossip. Even when people come 
to understand that what happened to them really was a problem, it's hard not to hear those voices in your head repeating those same sort of shameful things that just make you feel like, you know, maybe this all really was fine. Yeah, and also I imagine once people have kind of broken out of it and realized like it's not negative thinking to acknowledge that you were preyed on. Even then you're dealing with the public opinion around it all, Mm -hmm. the stigma. And I think it seems like to outsiders, spiritual abuse can seem consensual. What you see is there's a lot of shame, whether it's a spiritual case or a domestic case. It's very similar in certain ways in that people are embarrassed and traumatized. And so to kind of relive these stories and not knowing whether they're going to be believed is a very difficult thing. And I think sexual violence, you know, that has been under-prosecuted forever. And I, you mentioned that a lot of the victims in this case are men. And so I think sexual violence against men has gone under-prosecuted because there's a lot of shame around that. And so what does it say about me that I ended up in this position, right? Does this mean I wanted it? Does this mean it was consensual? I think another issue is that for a lot of these men I'm talking to, they don't have many examples of other men speaking out about the abuse they experienced. No, I I think that's true. I think that that moment has not come as forcefully, for sure, for men. I think that there is some more awareness now about sexual violence towards men and the shame that comes with that. But I think that we could definitely do more. It seems like the Nexium case marked a shift in how the legal system and law enforcement are taking on these kinds of groups. So now are we just in a better place as a society because of the larger conversation around abuse and consent? The whole theme of our trial was he was not a guru. He was a predator. He was a crime boss. When an organization claims to be a religion, that adds an additional layer of complication given the First Amendment protections in our country. And as a prosecutor, you're going to be taking on that case understanding that there is going to be an additional hurdle. It just means you have to be incredibly diligent in making sure that you can prove each element of a crime so that it doesn't matter whether somebody claims that this was part of their religion or not. I've been thinking part of the reason the case against Nexium was successful is that there's like a better awareness of the dynamics of cult-like groups and that kind of abuse. But it seems like you're saying what's different is that you realize that you can't think of it as a cult. What I was trying to say was whatever other issues there are with this group, at its heart, it's a criminal organization. There's no law against being a cult. The law is against using force, fraud, or coercion to have someone engage in specific sex acts. Sexually preying on students is clearly wrong. But proving it's criminal? That's the real challenge. Religions are protected. The legal boundaries of consent are murky. It's not illegal for religious leaders to have sexual relations with followers if they're adults. And it's difficult to prove coercion, difficult to explain the complexities of spiritual abuse. On top of that, the homophobia embedded in the teachings of the fellowship adds an extra layer of shame, making it even harder for these men to share their stories. 
So can there be closure? How does it end? We'll explore that in the next episode, when I go back to Apollo one last time. But all the students who have completed their role, they do so well, and we'll have a tough time doing as well as they did, but we should also perform well. Revelations is a Spotify original from Parcast, Blumhouse, Vespucci, and Gilded Audio. This podcast is reported, written, and hosted by me, Jennings Brown. I'll be sharing source material and reporting that didn't make it into the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at tjenningsbrown. Follow me there. If you have any information you'd like to share about the Fellowship of Friends, please email revelationstipline at gmail.com or call 347-480-3527 and leave a voicemail. Production, sound design, editing, and original music by Dan Rosado. Additional production by Whitney Donaldson, Ivana Tucker, Sarah Joyner, and Nick Dooley. Fact-checking by Charles Richter. Opening narration by Viet Horej. Actually, it's Horej. Viet Horej. Artistic director of the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater. Drew Cole is our content writing lead at Parcast. Executive producers are Jennings Brown and Dan Rosado. At Parcast, Max Cutler and Drew Cole. At Blumhouse, Jason Blum, Chris McCumber, Jeremy Gold, and Mary Licio. At Vespucci, Johnny Galvin and Daniel Turkin. At Gilded Audio, Andy Chug. If you are a survivor of sexual assault and need to talk to someone, call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 or visit hotline.rainn.org. If you are outside the U.S., Pathways Safety International can be reached at 833-SAFE-833.